In this episode of Full Stack Radio, Taylor Allwell and I talk about our approaches to testing Laravel applications. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 72. Hey everyone, before we get into the discussion with Taylor today, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. So I'm finally wrapping up the last chunk of content for my Tester and Laravel video course. Uh, So the early access discount is going to be closing this Friday, September 15th. If you want to level up your testing knowledge and learn how to build Laravel applications with TDD, I promise this course is going to give you all the skills you need to confidently test drive a Laravel project from scratch. It covers all sorts of topics ranging from how to write the very first test on a brand new project to testing code that needs to integrate with external services like Stripe. And it also includes tons of useful content on refactoring and writing well-designed object-oriented code. If you've ever wanted to look over the shoulder of an experienced Laravel developer and watch the TDD and app from scratch, I created this course just for you. There's over 15 hours of content and over 120 screencasts, and until Friday, you can get access to all of it for 139 bucks, which is over $100 off the regular price. So if you've been thinking about checking out the course, now is a great time to pick it up and save a ton of cash, and if you're not happy for any reason, I'm more than happy to refund all your money, no questions asked. If you want to learn more about it or check out some of the lessons for free, head over to testdrivenlaravel.com. That's all I got. Enjoy this conversation between me and Taylor Otwell. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, episode 72. And today I'm uh, back on the show with uh, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel. How's it going, Taylor? Pretty good. How's it going with you? Uh, can't complain. So uh, what I was hoping to chat about today uh, was basically just some sort of tips and tricks and strategies and approaches for uh, testing Laravel applications and sort of how we test Laravel applications and how our approaches have sort of evolved or changed over time. Uh, So maybe the best place to get things started would be to just talk a little bit about like, what do you think the biggest difference is in how you approach testing your Laravel apps now uh, versus, you know, maybe a few years ago. Yeah. So a few years ago, I feel like I was really testing at the super low level where like I would have an object uh, with a method on it. And maybe that object has a few dependencies that do everything. And I would, if I wanted to test that method, I would mock all of those dependencies, you know, set up all these expectations on the mocks, pass in the mocks and then call the method and, you know, basically assert that the exact methods I wanted to be called in the mocks were actually called. And the difference between that and now is now I feel like I'm testing at a higher level of abstraction kind of. So most of my test calls are just like HTTP controller calls, you know, just using the Laravel's own internal HTTP testing helpers. Um, and I find that I'm like rarely using mocks because I'm just going all the way through the controller because I really want to see like what happens in the system when I hit this controller call because what I found when I was testing before is like I always felt like I was just sort of redefining the method itself in my test Mm -hmm. because all the mock expectations looked exactly like what the method implementation looked like so first I want to know that it calls this method then it calls this method and I was just redefining the whole method so that anytime the method changed, I was always having to like radically restructure my test because all it was was a mirror of 
what the actual object was doing. Yeah. Um, so now I find I don't really have to do that because I've kind of stepped back a level and I think it kind of makes testing a lot more enjoyable really because I'm not having to constantly be screwing around with my test every time I change the code. So would you say that that approach where you are sort of writing your test for some piece of code and kind of verifying that that piece of code is, you know, doing what it's supposed to do in terms of very low level interactions with other objects and stuff. When you were doing things that way, were you writing tests after the fact most of the time then? Yeah, most of the time I would write tests after the fact. I mean, even now I write a decent amount of tests after the fact. Um, yeah, but I would always like write hack on the object first and kind of get it looking how I wanted to. And then I would come back and put tests around it. Yeah, I think that's like something that I noticed a lot myself too. When for some reason there's like, when you're trying to get into testing, you have this sort of idea like baked into your head that you're supposed to write there's supposed to be a test file for every class and you're supposed to write tests for like every sort of permutation of how you could interact with every public method on that class, you know, and people will even ask questions like, Oh, should I test private methods? Which sort of alludes to the fact that, that they're definitely creating a test for a class and testing the public methods at least, you know what I mean? Did yeah, you I sort used to of ask that same question? <laughs> yeah. So can you think of like why you thought that was like, the right way to test things like that's a question i ask myself sometimes like a lot of time you have these sort of like beliefs uh, yeah. that you've sort of like picked up around you know whatever resources that you're trying to learn things through and sometimes i have a really hard time like pinpointing like where did i even like get this idea from if i look back at like my own history program i feel like that idea really came around the same time that like i was learning about you know so-called solid principles where um, this is, I was actually still doing .NET when I learned kind of that style of testing. And I remember there was a big focus, you know, on these objects that are only concerned with one thing. And so when we're testing, we're only concerned. We don't want to be concerned with these other things that are happening in the system. It was the same sort of mentality. We only want to be concerned with what this object is doing. So that's what led to a lot of the mocking, you know, of every single thing that could possibly happen. Like that wasn't inside that object's method or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I feel like those two things kind of go together. Like as a programmer, you know, is sort of growing and learning like how to be a better programmer. Someone eventually introduces them to solid and single responsibility principle in particular. And then I feel like that is sort of tied to how they learn to test where they are trying to apply some of those same thoughts to their tests, but it ends up just being the wrong way to test, honestly. Yeah. I think like another element of that is when you're learning testing, you sort of think of it as like, okay, I want to write tests for my code and mm. you have some code and you want to write tests to prove that code works versus what I think is a sort of a subtly different way of thinking about it, which is like, I want to write tests that prove that the app does what my code is supposed to make it do. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a different way of thinking like testing that this code you know, does what I wanted it to do versus testing like that I get the result or I get the outcome that this code is sort of contributing to creating, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's pretty important because like your app has this sort of contract of behavior that you're offering to users and how it's implemented in the code is just a coincidence of that's just happens to be the way it's implemented for now to fulfill this like promise to the users. So if you're testing like, 
the actual end goal of what you're trying to do, it just feels like your tests are a lot less brittle and sort of more valuable over time as the system changes. Yeah. So um, something that changed in, would it be Laravel 5.4? Uh, we sort of mm-hmm. changed the default test folder structure, right? So before we used to just have like a tests folder and there was like an example test in there. Uh, but now we ship with a feature test folder and a unit test folder that are both like their own uh, namespaced test folders. So in the feature folder is typically where you are writing tests that are kind of designed to work at the HTTP level, right? Where you're using helpers like uh, this post or this get, and you get back like a response object and you can make assertions about that. And then in the unit test folder is where you can just, you know, write, I guess what you would think of as more traditional tests where it's like a, a file for a class sort of thing. Yeah. So if you're writing tests mostly at the HTTP level now, which is the, the same way that I'm working, mm-hmm. um, then whenever you're working on something new, you're starting in that feature test folder, right? Yeah. And I actually just looked at the project I'm working on. I have no classes in my unit <laughs> test folder. So, so they actually are all in the feature test folder. So that's, that's kind of where I wanted to get at with this, which I, I think is interesting is that so I find by, okay, so actually let's step back a little bit. So something that I think is interesting, that is um, something I think I remember you saying like years and years ago was when you were first working on uh, Laravel and trying to figure out how things should work. Uh, you had this sort of mental model of like simplifying a web app down to like, what is it really doing? It's like a request comes in and a response comes out. And then and the end point is basically just a function, right? And that was kind of like how you thought about this stuff. Yeah. So something that, you know, I always ask myself is like when I'm trying to implement some endpoint in an application, like say we're doing like the classic, uh, let's use like a, an app that manages podcasts. I gave this talk at Laracon a couple months ago and it's more fun than like the, the classic blog example or whatever. Uh, but say we had an endpoint for like adding a new episode to a podcast or something. Um, if you're trying to test everything at like the unit test level, it sort of implies that I couldn't just write um, my entire implementation of this endpoint as a closure in the routes file. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And why why shouldn't I be able to do that? You know, that's something that I always found weird about this. Like if I could have this request come in with the data that makes up this episode and write in a closure, right in the routes file, I could say, you know, uh, podcast equals podcast find or fail some ID and then podcast episodes create and pass in the request stuff and return it. You know, if that gives the end user, you know, exactly what they're looking for and is a totally valid implementation, then I should be able to write a test for that. And the only way to write a test for that is by writing a test that makes an HTTP request and then inspects the response to make sure that we get the right response and then also checks some side effects, right? Like maybe something Mm -hmm. exists in the database that didn't exist in the database before. And if you write that test at that level such that it can support an implementation that's just a closure in the routes file, that same test will also pass if you move that to a controller or a service object or a command going into a command bus or, or, or anything like that, right? And when, yeah. I, when you start to think about it in that way, it's like, so I have this one test that buys me four completely different implementations just based on that like two seconds of brainstorming there. How is that not like the most valuable test that I could write for that situation, you know? Yeah. 
I don't know. It feels like the most common critiques of this kind of testing are like, it's going to be too slow to hit the database or, you know, that's the main thing I hear, but like, I don't know how else to actually prove that feature works unless you are actually verifying that it, you know, stores stuff correctly in the database. Yeah. And I mean, I I think like the common rebuttal to that or whatever is, you know, you're, you should use test doubles and uh, say you wanted to store something in the database. It should be going through some layer um, that's responsible for that, like a repository or something. And then even if you wanted to write this HTTP test, you could replace that repository in the IOC container with like a, a mock. And you could say like this episode's repository should receive store with this, you know, with an episode object that sort of matches this description. And if uh, that happens, then you could say that the test is passing. And then you would write a separate test for that repository that proves that when you try to store something in the repository, that that gets saved to the database. Now, you, there's no way that you could avoid using the database in that test. Like you would have to, right? Like right. Uh, the whole reason you're creating this repository is to prevent yourself from hitting the database in your other tests. But it's critical that you hit the database in that test because like the whole purpose of it is to is to make you feel comfortable that by calling that method that it's getting saved in the database. I still don't really find that that ends up being like super worthwhile to me. It's one of those like sort of dogmatic things where, you know, okay, well your test shouldn't hit the database, but why? Like I, I I never really had someone give me a good explanation of of why it matters except for speed. But Mm -hmm. the reality in my opinion is that the speed is never really, actually that big of a problem especially because if you introduce like a layer like that like that repository layer you are committing to that design in a sense right like as soon as your feature tests like your http tests are using a mocked repository so that the feature test doesn't have to hit the database well now if you ever decide oh i don't want to use a repository anymore i think i just want to go back to sort of like by the book basic eloquent stuff well, that test is not valid anymore because that test doesn't support that design because that test was sort of written um, under the assumption that like this repository is a permanent part of your architecture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've just never had a situation where the speed improvement was really all that worth it. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a, a horrible way to test if you had to have that speed improvement, but I've just never actually seen it be that much of a, an improvement really. Yeah. And I think even though it is an improvement again, like people are not willing to acknowledge the cost of that, which is again, that you're committing to that design now. So there's something about this, like obsession with test isolation and speed where people sort of like forget that, none of that stuff like comes for free. Like you're make, definitely making like a trade off and you're extremely undervaluing the flexibility you get from a test that treats the system like more like a black box. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I just find also that the speed argument is not as valid because a lot of times when I'm working on a piece of code, I'm not running the whole test suite for every change. I'm using something to run maybe one test or one test file And so I'm going to refactor the whole feature and keep running like a single test or a a group of maybe four or five tests that are going to finish in like one second. At the most, like that's slower than most of my single files would ever run. 
And at the very end, you know, when I'm done with like this whole thing, only then am I really going to run the whole test suite, um, which in some of my apps takes a little while because just the t- kinds of apps I build, like I have to SSH into Docker machines and like do stuff. So I think my whole test suite takes like one minute, which is, you know, not something you want to be running constantly, but it's not like crazy long. But yeah, I mean, I just find it's not that valid because I'm never running the whole test suite that often. Yeah, and I find too, like 99% of the time, um, running the whole test suite, like when I'm done working on some feature or whatever, it's very rare that I have some failure in some like distant part of the test suite. You know what I mean? So Yeah, it's rare for me too. It's really just like a sort of double check, like make sure that something I really didn't expect to happen happened sort of situation where it's totally valid to just be running like that single file. Like most of the time you're not getting any additional benefit from running the whole suite. But like if you work on something for an hour, you know, it's not that big of a deal to have a test suite that takes two minutes to run uh, before you commit that feature, you know, while you go make a coffee or use the washroom or whatever, you know what I mean? Usually I'm ready to take a, a quick break anyway. Yeah. And again, it's like not long enough to matter. Even if that break is just like, oh, I'm going to run this and then, you know, check my email for a second or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, ju- I just don't see it like being that big of a deal. But what I what I do find is that the flexibility that I get from from really starting at the HTTP level is is probably the most valuable part of testing for me. Like, I guess for me, when I'm writing tests for something, my absolute number one priority is making sure that whatever test I write is going to give me the flexibility to refactor the code because I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I'm going to get the design perfect on the very first mm-hmm. time. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I'll design something that works, but I want to be able to tweak that and try extracting something to another class without um, having to change the tests or anything. And I find if you're trying to mock everything or work you know, directly at the unit test level all the time, Uh, you're really sort of pouring concrete on that design and you can't really like, you know, refactor by the true definition of the word anymore because, you know, refactoring is meant to imply that you can be running the tests while you're making these changes and verifying that your code is still doing the same thing. And uh, if you can't run the tests because those tests were so coupled to that one implementation, well, you're sort of flying blind when you're doing the refactoring. So, I don't know. I really don't see any value in tests that just sort of prove that you wrote the code that you wrote. Um, Yeah. And I think you lose, I mean, you lose one of the primary benefits of testing really. I mean, recently I was working on a feature and I like drastically changed how this one part of the app works. I mean, just like totally changed core, like foundational assumptions about how something worked. And I maybe spent like five minutes updating the test after, whereas before, like I would have spent a couple hours, like rewriting all of these mocks, rewriting all of this, you know, uh, implementation I had baked into my test just to see if this works again. And I would still like the test wouldn't be as reliable because they wouldn't really be testing like the end goal of what I actually want to happen in the application. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think what happens then, right, is you end up basically manually testing it while you're making the changes and making sure that, like, as you click around in the browser or fire off these background jobs or whatever, that things are working and you sort of, like, assess the new state of the app after you're done running that code and make sure, okay, yeah, it seemed to work. And now that I know that's working, 
um, let's go to the tests and sort of lock down this implementation by like making sure that this method gets called on this mock and, and stuff like that. That's, that's sort of how it ended up working in my experience when I wrote tests that way. Yeah. So if, um, if you're working at the feature level, um, at least to start most of the time, when do you switch down to the unit test level? I think this is like a, a question that a lot of people have that doesn't really get, you know, answered clearly a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I thought about that a little bit. And one example I have um, and something I'm working on is to put it in like forge terms, which people might understand is like if you delete a server, I wanted to make sure that all these other things need to be deleted as well. Like I need to delete the sites. I need to delete the SSL certificate records. I need to do all that stuff. And I actually, I wrote a method just to like create a server and attach all of these relations to it. And then I just called delete on the server. So it's not going through the HTTP layer, but I still think most people would consider that like more of an integration test, but that's about as low level, like as I've gone where I'm just like interacting with eloquent models and making sure that when I do certain things like delete a server, that all of this other related data is deleted correctly as well. Um, but I feel like a lot of the apps I build are just by nature sort of gluing together all of these, um, third party or like infrastructure services so that it's really hard for me to come up with like this concept of a pure unit test that you usually see in like textbook examples where it's like unit testing a calculator or something like that. I just find like a lot of web apps these days actually are just kind of gluing together various APIs and databases and stuff like that to where it makes it hard for me to come up with a pure example of a unit test. Yeah. I find that's true too for me. Like most of the time I'm trying to think like, what is a good example of when I would write a unit test? I think my motivation for writing unit tests usually is I'm writing an HTTP sort of level feature test. And if I'm doing TDD, I'm I'm writing that first and I'm trying to drive out an implementation. And eventually I get to a point where the errors in the feature test are just like really not helpful and getting me to like the next part of the implementation. I might just be getting like trying to call, um, property foo on null. You know what I mean? You get errors like Mm -hmm. this that are just like, well, that's not really helpful or whatever. A lot of the time I'll just kind of push past that and figure out what that error is and then fix it at whatever level I'm working at. Uh, But sometimes if you're really just trying to use your tests to sort of carry some of that like mental baggage for you, which I find is a, a really powerful sort of element of testing is that it sort of lets you offload some of like all the stuff you're trying to keep in your head at once like trying to you ever you ever working on something where it's like you're really you can feel your brain working really hard to sort of keep all the pieces together and understand like okay well i gotta make sure that like changing this what's that gonna affect like i gotta keep that in mind and make sure that whatever change i'm making here isn't gonna affect that in a bad way or whatever where i find um by having tests a lot of time, you can just sort of like throw things at the wall and not think about it as much a lot of time because you have the computer sort of like holding mm-hmm. all that sort of context together for you. Yeah. And do you mean like, do you mean like certain, like certain kind of what you would call business rules about the app that you don't want to have to always be keeping in your head? That and just like sometimes there's, say I'm writing a test for something and there's like six different input cases or something mm, and mm-hmm. I'm changing the implementation to try and support the sixth one and 
if I don't have tests, I have to sort of be thinking like, okay, is the third input case going to still work when I change this? Whereas with having tests, I can just like try it and run it. And if that one fails, it's like, okay, that didn't work. I'll try something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's okay. a lot more mindless a lot of the time in terms of like, you feel a lot more free to just like try implementations and trust that like your tests will tell you instead of like having to figure it out in your head, if that's a safe sort of attempt. Yeah. Um, but sort of getting back to like, how that drives me to work on a unit test instead of a feature test is sometimes I'll get to a point with a feature test where I'm getting an error that's not super clear and I don't feel confident trying to figure it out. Like I feel like I want some help and that's a lot of the time when I'll, I'll jump down to a unit level test and I'll write a unit test for functionality that is already covered by the feature test. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so if the feature test fails, um, then I know that that unit is broken. Like there's no way for that feature test to pass and like the unit test to also pass, if that makes sense. So yeah. most of my, almost all my unit tests are essentially redundant coverage. Like they're testing things that the HTTP tests would already catch, but the value that they're providing is that if the HTTP test fails, I might get some really cryptic error that's going to be hard to trace. Whereas um, by having a unit test coverage as well for certain things, not everything, when the feature test fails, a unit test will also fail with a more helpful stack trace and a more helpful error that lets me kind of pinpoint the problem faster. But that's not something that I do for, for everything. Like a good example, I guess, is like, well, not a, a related example is a lot of time I have people ask me questions like, what should I not test? Like, um, do you write tests when you add a relationship to an eloquent model? You know what I mean? To test mm -hmm. that the relationship is there. And I never write tests for that, but that doesn't mean that it's not tested in the sense yeah. that if I deleted that relationship, there are going to be failing tests for sure. Like it's sort of covered by just implicitly because there's other functionality that I am testing that depends on that having been set up, you know? And I think like that you, you wind up in that situation a lot when you work uh, from the HTTP level, because all your tests are just sort of describing, like, if this endpoint on my app is a function that my user is calling and expecting some response, I just want to test that what the, the API that the end user is interacting with, you know, works correctly. And as long as that whole API works correctly, it doesn't matter what's going on under the hood, but all the stuff under the hood supports that. So as soon as you delete a relationship method or something that's going to fail and i didn't have to write a test that says you know test that an episode belongs to a podcast you know like right. that sort of stuff yeah. is just like not valuable at all but you're never going to be able to delete that relationship without some other test failing anyways so i don't know really getting into the habit of like trying to define my tests from the perspective of a person interacting with like the endpoints of my application and just letting the implementation um, sort of be covered implicitly by the fact that the relationships need to exist for the feature to work, um, yeah. you know, avoids that sort of thing. And related to that, one thing I saw you do, which I've started doing a lot when we were hacking on a Laravel feature a while back was just like purposefully deleting some code just to like make sure that the tests are failing <laughs> where you can actually see like, oh, okay, this is actually covered by some tests, which I think is pretty useful sometimes to just like, a code you're not sure is tested, just comment it out entirely and see if your tests yeah. still pass. Yeah, I think that's super valuable because uh, it can really help you just like 
figure out first either you know can i delete this code like is this just not being used if you're confident mm-hmm. that you have like full test coverage because i have run into situations like that where i have just like dead code um or you know is this code like untested and if so i need to figure out a way to test it i guess i guess like the other situation i write unit tests for is actually here's like an actually a good concrete example that's sort of related to something else is a lot of time I'll add methods to objects um, for sort of presentational reasons. So I might have like a method. Um, so here's a good example. So in the Ticket Beast app, which is from my testing course, there's a page where we show like the um, the percent of tickets that have been sold for a concert. So the only place that that method actually gets used is in like that blade template to display that number you know what i mean it's not like used for like any calculations like in the controller or anything like hitting an endpoint it's going to um fail or it's not gonna the endpoint is not gonna fail if that method doesn't exist it only ever gets called when the template is rendered so if i have methods that i'm adding to a an object uh, just to display like some formatted stuff in the template or do some calculation for the template i'll unit test those most of the time uh, because it's easier to just say, okay, well, I need to be able to display like the percent of tickets that have been sold in the view. So I'll just write a, a method on the concert class or whatever and, you know, seed the database with, you know, some tickets that have been sold and some tickets that haven't been sold and verify that I get like the right number back uh, when I call that method. The the thing that's sort of related to that that I think is like a, a really useful tip that I think people should play with is that you might think that you could cover that in a feature test by just saying like after I hit the endpoint to bring back the page that shows like the sales summary for the concert or whatever, that I should be able to see that percentage in that rendered HTML, right? Like I think with Laravel 5, 4 and up, it's like response assert C or something like that. Right, yeah. And you just like specify a string and make sure that that mm-hmm. appears in the HTML. Yeah. I've actually basically stopped using that sort of functionality entirely over the last few months uh, just because I've always found trying to test rendered HTML to be really brittle and sort of iffy. And there's a lot of things that you can't even do with it that are sometimes important. So the situation that I found myself in where I, I decided I have to figure out a way to not test rendered HTML anymore is say you are displaying like a list and you want to make sure that that list is displayed in the right order. So uh, a ticket beast example is like we show the most recent um, orders that have been placed for a concert, right? The most recent tickets that have been sold. And mm-hmm. we want to show like the most recent sale at the top and the oldest sale at the bottom. If you want to test that with like assert C by like looking at the HTML and verifying that they're in the right order, like I can't even think of a good way to do that. Right. Because all you're doing is checking like, oh, I see this customer's email. I see this customer's email. I see this customer's email. Um, We have to like add some helper that says like, I see this customer's email in the chunk of the string that appears after this customer's email or something. You know what I mean? It just sounds like really silly. It's pretty bad pretty quick. So what I do instead now is I don't test the rendered HTML and I instead just write assertions about the data that was passed to the view when you rendered it. So with uh, with Laravel, when you return a view from a controller, right, you do something like return, view, pass the template name and any data. Uh, when you get that response back in your test, you can call this method on the response that I think is like get original. And mm-hmm. that returns 
whatever you actually returned from the controller, right? So whatever right. the raw object that came back from the controller was. So it could just be an array. If you're just returning an array that you're expecting to get turned into JSON, or it could be that view object, or it could be an actual redirect response instance or something like that. Um, so I use that get original method to get the view and then I can get the data off of the view and I can make assertions about that data. So all of a sudden things like checking the order of a list that was passed to the view is so much easier. Right. So I can just say that the first item in the list should be the order with this email and the last item in the list should be the order with this email. Um, now, the only thing that you have to like keep in mind, I guess, when you're working this way, which I think is sort of a useful habit to get into anyways, is you have to be really careful to avoid sort of important logic in your view because you're not testing that logic anymore. So, for example, if I'm sending those orders to the view, there's nothing stopping me from doing the sorting in the blade template, right? Like I could just say for each orders, order by whatever or sort by descending, you know, order date. Right. Um, there's nothing stopping me from doing that sorting in the view, but then I can't test the sorting. So by sort of working this way, it sort of like pushes you to what I think is sort of a, a better approach of trying to pass sort of dumb data to the view where all the work is sort of already done and all the view has to do is just like render it in the places where, you know, the designer or front end team decides to render that information, you know? Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. So by combining that approach or by using that approach, it sort of leads me down this path where a lot of the time I'll have methods that only get used in views, and those methods end up being good candidates uh, for unit tests. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. and We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. Something else I think is interesting to talk about is you mentioned kind of briefly at the very beginning of our conversation that you aren't really using like mocks anymore in the sense of like, using like mockery or something like that. Mm. Um, what do you think has sort of like contributed to that? And what are you doing instead? I think part of it is just a natural byproduct of not testing at such a low level to where if I'm testing at the controller, I'm just letting the real implementations be injected in. Um, I think also it's just not caring as much about hitting actual services. Um, so a lot of times when I test at the, 
HTTP layer, for instance, if I if my service interacts with GitHub or whatever, like Forge does, I'll just let it actually hit GitHub. And because I feel like that's the, it's sort of a similar situation to the database thing where like, I actually do have a GitHub class that's like a service class that talks to GitHub and I can like mock that. And I have done that before, just like mock that call, uh, depending on, it kind of depends on like how much I'm going to be calling GitHub in a certain mm-hmm. file. If I'm only going to be making a couple calls to it, um, I don't bother. But if I have like 10 tests that are all going to call GitHub, sometimes I think about um, mocking that GitHub class and then having tests just for that class by itself. But actually on the, uh, lately I, I've kind of taken the approach where I have both kind of like you were saying, where I have, I do have a set of tests that like just test the GitHub interaction class. But then a lot of times I'll just let the HTTP test hit it too. Um, and again, it's never been that big of a problem, um, speed wise, cause there's just not a ton of tests that do that. But yeah, I think it's just a natural product of stepping back a level and just kind of writing the simplest HTTP tests I can and just sort of letting that pass. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I find like the same thing in terms of not using like a library, like mockery so much anymore, but what I'm doing instead most of the time now is writing like fakes. So mm-hmm. if, um, if people are sort of familiar with when did we get mail fakes and, uh, Q fakes and stuff like that? Was that five, three? I can't remember if it was five, three or five, four. I really don't remember, but pretty key insight, I feel like, to like simplifying tests. Yeah, somewhere in there we got these like fake objects, right? And the idea of a fake is, so a fake is just like another kind of test double, right? Where, you know, a mock, a stub, a dummy, uh, whatever. These are all sort of different types or classifications of, of test doubles. And a fake is interesting to me because it's sort of like the most real type of test double. So usually what you're doing with a fake is you're taking like some object and you can think about that object as implementing some interface and a fake sort of implements the same interface, but sort of like fakes out all the real work. So um, a good example of this that I do all the time is like, uh, if I'm trying to interact with Stripe, I don't really want to hit Stripe in all my HTTP tests. So instead I'll have like um, a payment gateway interface or something and I'll have a Stripe implementation, but I'll also have a fake implementation. And when I try to make a charge with the fake implementation, all it's really doing is like storing that charge in an array somewhere. It's not actually making any external calls or anything like that. But the useful thing about a fake is that you can add methods to it to make assertions, right? So just mm-hmm. like how with fakes work with mail, you know, you can f- you can replace the mailer in Laravel with a fake mailer. And now all of a sudden, every time you send an email, all it does is store that email in an array so that you can verify later, you know, yes, there is an email in that array that matches, you know, the email that I tried to send. So you can add methods like assert sent or assert queued, uh, which is really cool. So I do the same thing with like a payment gateway. I can say like assert charged and pass through like an email address and an amount or something to see that, you know, we have a charge stored uh, that matched that. The thing that I find really useful about them, or the reason I think I like them a lot more uh, than mocks, is first of all, you have full control over like what the API of working with it looks like. So instead of saying like, you know, mockery mock some class should receive some method and return whatever, where you're kind of like working really low level, instead all you have to do is like bind the fake to the IOC container. It has the same API as the real thing. So your code doesn't even have to like 
care. It just interacts with it and everything just kind of works as long as you design it properly. Mm -hmm. And then you can just expose like the sorts of assertions that you want. So instead of having to say like this mock should have received the send method with these two hard coded arguments and this third argument, which is a mockery on closure that, you know, accepts a message and the message should have this, you know, you end up writing a lot of really gnarly code, especially when you're trying to like say that it should have received um, a parameter where you can't pass through the exact parameter that I received, but instead yeah. you just have to say it should have received a parameter sort of matching these characteristics where you have to do some funky <laughs> yeah. stuff with a closure with like a fake. You can just like say, um, you know, the payment gateway should have charged this email, this amount, or the, the mailer should have re- sent an email to this person with this subject, or the queue should have dispatched a job matching this class with this data, you just have full control over like what the assertion API looks like, which is so much nicer than trying to do stuff with mockery and not to like bash mockery because I really like mockery as like a test double generator sort of tool. I just find that like generating test doubles like that is sort of like, that's like the exception to me when I'm using test doubles. Like I, I don't do that very often. The other reason that fakes are awesome is because you can write a fake once, you know, save that fake as a class in your tests directory or even in your app directory if you want and now you can use that same fake in all of your tests whereas with like a mocking tool you have to like reprogram the mock every time or whatever mm-hmm. right so this you just write once and then use everywhere um, yeah, it takes a lot of noise out of your tests yeah do you find yourself like writing your own fakes for things very often yeah we did that for horizon i think horizon is a good example of if someone wants to see like how i do testing now I think Horizon is a pretty good example to look at because it has some examples of fakes. It has examples of testing um, a pretty complicated package at a kind of higher level than maybe what people would expect. And it's still like one of the most like trust, trustworthy test suites I feel like I've written in the sense that it actually proves that the whole thing does what it's supposed to do. And we've actually had very few bugs on Horizon um, since it was released, which I think is sort of a testament to how the test suite actually was providing a lot of value there. Um, so that would be a good example and it has good examples of fakes as well. Awesome. Yeah. So I think the last thing uh, that would be interesting to talk about, which you, which you touched on a little bit here is um, testing like the code that actually like does interact with like external services. Cause everyone always talks about like, Oh, you should mock out the network or whatever. You don't want to be making calls to GitHub. Otherwise, you can't run your test suite on an airplane because that's where you're usually running your test suite. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I guess it'd be interesting to just kind of talk about approaches for for actually uh, dealing with that stuff. So back to the like, payment gateway example, I guess. If I'm writing a fake for a payment gateway and I have a Stripe implementation for a payment gateway, I still need to test that that Stripe implementation, right? So using the fake, I can test all my HTTP stuff and know that that stuff's working with the fake version of the payment gateway, but I need to know that like the real thing works. Right. Um, so with something like Stripe, it's like pretty straightforward in the sense that Stripe does a pretty good job of giving you like a testing sandbox, right? Like you have like your test account, you can make all these API calls to it and stuff. So if I have like a Stripe implementation of my payment gateway, I might write, real full-on integration tests for it where if i try to pass through whatever parameters i've decided i want for my charging api 
I can then make like an API request to Stripe after the fact and say, okay, Stripe should have a charge logged now um, for this email for this amount. And if they do, then I know that my my thing is working. Um, so what I've been doing with that stuff is I've added another top level folder to my tests folder, like another namespace called integration, mm-hmm. which is not really integration in the sense that a lot of people tend to use that word. Like people say integration tests to mean like test that uses two classes or test that talks to the database or something like that. But yeah. instead I'm, I'm usually just, I'm using it to classify like tests that test my integrations with you know, third party or external services. So in an integration folder, I might have like a test for my GitHub class or a test for my Stripe payment gateway. Um, and these tests, I, I make it easy to like skip them from my main test run. So like I can sort of control whether I'm only running tests that are able to run without the network versus like the whole test suite sort of thing. Mm, how do you make that easy? So there's a, a couple ways that you can do it. The way that I've been doing it recently, let me actually just check this here. So uh, you can set up your test suites, right? So in your PHP init.xml file, you can have this test suites sort of XML tag key, and you can name a few of them in there and specify the folders. So on oh, the okay, app that I'm yeah. looking at right now, I just have two test suites in there, feature and unit. Um, and those point at the feature and unit directories. So when I run just PHP unit, it skips the integration folder by default. If I want to run the integration folder, I have to run PHP unit and then pass the path to that folder so that it like explicitly runs it. Okay, I got you. Uh, but you can also set up groups. And if you set up groups, um, there's a special flag. Oh man, I should. I wish I could remember this off the top of my head. But um, if you say like you want to ignore a certain group by default. So say I ignore my integration group by default. You can also run PHP unit and then dash dash ignore dash group equals none, I think. I'd have mm-hmm. to double check this. But if you say ignore group none, then that'll override your PHP unit XML configuration and run all of them. Um, so that's kind of the way that I've been doing that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I do there that I think has been like really valuable for me is uh, something that I, I don't really see... I haven't really seen many other people talk about anywhere. Like I've seen a few people talk about it, but it doesn't seem to be a super common practice is this idea of creating these contract tests. So like if I have a Stripe payment gateway and a fake payment gateway, I like to have like one set of tests that I can run against both of them. Um, that verifies that they both sort of behave the same way from like the outsider's perspective. You know so what I mean? So this would be like protecting against the Stripe API starting to deviate from your fake API. Yeah. So like I've had situations where this has been, where this has proven itself to be useful. So, so for example, like a subtle thing that can like happen if you're not careful is say I have a method on my um, fake payment gateway that returns all the charges that happened during a certain request. And I have the same thing on the Stripe one Mm -hmm. the stripe api returns you all of the charges in the order of most recent to oldest right like that's how their api is sort of paginated the first item is always the newest one and the last one is the oldest one um with the fake the most natural way to do it ends up being the reverse because all i'm doing is dumping charges into an array right so the oldest charge Mm -hmm. ends up being the first item in the array so if i'm not careful it's really easy for my fake to return charges oldest to newest and the real implementation to return charges newest to oldest. And that's like a really subtle, small thing that's like hard to really notice. 
And then as soon as I go to production, I notice all of a sudden that things are showing up in the wrong order or breaking because there's that like subtle difference between like the two implementations. So what I'll do is I'll create like a trait. And uh, in this example that I'm looking at here, I have a trait called payment gateway tests. And it has a couple of abstract methods. And then in my actual Stripe gateway test, I mix in that trait and implement those abstract methods. And I do the same thing with the fake. So um, that set of tests just proves that like when I try to do the same thing with both implementations that like they behave uh, the same way. So it's, it's really made it easy for me to catch like subtle differences like that uh, between things. So that's been like a, a really useful approach. And I can link to some some content on that if people want to try it but that's been like a a really cool way for me to feel confident using my fakes in all my http tests knowing that when i swap in the real thing like everything is still going to work because i sort of have these tests that prove that the fake and the real thing do the same thing like another situation you might run into is maybe the real thing throws an exception and the fake one just returns null for something Mm. you know what i mean like Mm. that sort of thing you want to make sure that they both throw an exception or they both return null so it's nice to have um, that sort of thing uh, in place. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that lets you ship your apps with confidence. CodeShip comes in two flavors. Uh, The first one is CodeShip Basic, which is a simple testing and deployment platform with pre-installed CI dependencies uh, that works right out of the box. The average setup time for a CodeShip Basic project is about three minutes, often less. Uh, The other flavor is CodeShip Pro. So CodeShip Pro is a fully customizable continuous integration and delivery platform with native Docker support. It makes it easy to test and deploy your microservices and push to any registry. It's also perfect if you want to deploy with Kubernetes and comes with a convenient local CLI tool that allows you to run your builds locally, helps with encrypting your environment variables, and guarantees 100% parity between your development and production environments. Both CodeShip Basic and CodeShip Pro come with a free plan that grants 100 builds per month, unlimited projects, and unlimited users. And open source projects are always free on CodeShip. So you can visit CodeShip.com today or check out CodeShip.com slash features to find out which CodeShip product is the best fit for you. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Back to the show. So um, what are you doing for external services like stuff that talks to to GitHub or you know, DigitalOcean or, or any of the crazy stuff that you have to interact with with the projects that you work on? Basically similar similar things to you, although I don't have a really a separate directory for them. I still kind of just have a class for each one. The only kind of like annoying thing I found with some of this stuff is, you know, of course there's no concept of like a transaction of behavior when I'm interacting with GitHub. So like if I have a test that adds an SSH key to someone's GitHub account, I have to sort of like clean that up after. And if it errors in the middle, then now there's an SSH key just hanging out there. And I don't really have like a great solution for that. I think it's just kind of the nature of like interacting with GitHub. Yeah, I think so Um, too. But yeah, I mean, basically the same thing where I just have a class for each service I interact with. So like for Forge, I have a digital ocean test, a GitHub test. Um, On something recently, I was writing an Amazon S3 test and they... so. With your like DigitalOcean tests, does it like cost mm-hmm. you money to run those tests? Uh, I assume so. <laughs> well, I don't know because actually some of the DigitalOcean tests I run are just adding like um, um, 
like a what do they call them? The IP addresses they have, the cloud IPs, or okay, and Amazon they're like elastic IPs. I forget what DigitalOcean calls calls them. I don't know if that really costs money, but like if I was creating actual servers, yeah, it would cost money. So what I did was, um, I have this Docker machine that I start before I run like my full suite of tests that basically behaves as like an Ubuntu server that I can SSH into just like a real digital ocean machine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of how I get around, um, costing money to test all of that stuff. Yeah. So if you need to spin up a server and then test, like when you run this provisioning script that afterwards now, um, this tool is installed and this tool is yeah. installed and stuff like that. Yeah. I think so, people sort of undervalue, like not really undervalue, but they sort of like, underestimate um the value in putting a lot of work into some of this sort of like test support code or sort of test support infrastructure to like Mm -hmm. just make it really easy to prove the things that you want to prove by you know like you're saying like you have this like docker environment that you've created now that lets you do that sort of thing i think a lot of people expect to not have to do that you know so i think it's good to sort of like put it out there that like if you want to have like a really valuable test suite that can really prove the things that you want it to prove, like it's worthwhile sort of investing in tooling around it. That's sort of like specific to your application. Yeah. This gives so much more confidence. I mean, we literally run a script on the Docker machine and then SSH into it and like extract out the configuration file to like make sure it looks correct. Yeah. Like what's hilarious is with that setup like you could change your implementation of like forge's provisioning from a bash script to ansible and like Mm -hmm. in theory you could still use the same set of tests because all it's doing is testing that like when i run this provisioning command of which the implementation nobody cares um after the fact when i check to see that things are installed then yes they are installed so it gives you like again it's, it's it's buying you so much flexibility in terms of um, you know how you could choose to implement something yeah, or I literally don't think I would have to change the test at all yeah and that's pretty amazing when you think about like the alternative which is like uh, my ansible class should receive this method with this argument it's just like man yeah. like the one thing I wish someone had told me when I first got started with testing is like don't start at the low level like I don't know how I got this idea in my head that that's like the way I'm supposed to test things, but it's so much better to write sort of a a slightly bigger, slightly nastier test to start that buys you the opportunity to write 50 different implementations. And then like maybe six months from now, like when you're really confident that like, yeah, you know, the way that we are implemented this, at least some parts of it have become like really stable now now we can simplify this test a little bit to use like a few test doubles or something, then fine. Um, but trying to do that stuff like upfront to me is like a, just a death sentence for like refactorability. Yeah. And I think it's really nice that it also happens to be a really approachable way to introduce people to testing happens to be this way that also provides like a lot of actual value, <laughs> you know, cause a lot of times, uh, when we're showing like beginner something, you have to show them like this kind of like dumbed down way that you would never actually use. But I feel like with testing, the way that you should introduce someone to it is probably at this higher level. And it's 
not something you have to necessarily graduate away from or discard when you become more advanced. It's actually this really useful way of testing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's funny. Like testing is like made out to be like this really complicated, like hard advanced thing. And there's all this sort of dogma out there about how, you know, you should be writing these low level, fast, isolated unit tests. And that's like sort of what you should be looking to achieve. And that sort of proves that like you're a professional and you should be using like the number of mocks and your tests to tell you secretly what your design is supposed to be. And like, I just like, don't buy that at all anymore. It's, it's just like, I don't know how to explain it, but I just don't trust anyone who tells me that that's the way things are supposed to be. Like they must be so disconnected from like reality. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's just not how things end up actually working out. And it's taken me so long to get to the point where I can start like confidently like trusting what has worked for me and like recommending it without feeling like I just don't get it yet or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think once we've proven it, you know, quite a few times that (laughs) you just sort of start to trust it more. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, touch on before we started wrapping things up or, uh, or do you already feel good? No, not really. This is kind of a downtime for me after uh, Laracon, so I don't really have that much going on. <laughs> nice. Well, um, yeah, this has been like a, a fun conversation. Hopefully people picked up some, some interesting uh, tips and tactics about how uh, they should test their you know Laravel applications and how to write test suites that uh, they feel confident in. If uh, Not to put you on the spot, but if you were to give someone like you know, one piece of advice that you wish someone had given you about testing uh, to help them kind of get moving in the right direction. Uh, what do you think that would be? Just don't be scared to let your tests touch uh, multiple pieces of your code or touch the database or stuff like that. Don't feel uh, guilty about it or feel like you're writing tests wrong if you're, you know, letting eloquent talk to the database during your test or going through a controller for your test. If that's what makes you confident that your application's working. Yeah, I think that's the, the the most important thing is like the whole point of your test suite is that when you see that big green bar at the bottom that you can feel good that everything works. And if yeah. you have a big green bar at the bottom and you still don't really feel like confident that things are, are working, then maybe you're trying to like appease uh, the wrong God here when it comes to testing. Yeah. You know, your tests should be written like for you like they're for your benefit so write them in whatever way you know makes you you know gives you the most sense of ease and puts you at peace <laughs> with yeah. the, uh, your own test suite so awesome man well it's been a pleasure having you back on uh, to chat about this stuff uh, thanks for giving me your time all right no problem see ya if anybody is interested in uh, show notes for this episode uh, head over to fullstackradio.com and check out episode uh, 72 uh, thanks to Rollbar and CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week. And if you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and uh, give us a five-star review. And if you want to actually leave a review, I read all of them. And it uh, always feels good when I see someone leave me a, a positive message about the podcast. If you have a negative message about the podcast, that's okay. You don't really have to tell anybody that. But it's something good. You could tell that to me. I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> So uh, thanks everyone for checking out uh, this episode of Full Stack Radio and I'll see you next time.